Chapter Five of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Five. It was afternoon. Mrs. Bazine listened to Judge Smith explaining the new moving pictures that were being shown at the vaudeville theaters. It's all part of the craze for new things he was saying, and these awful pictures are merely a fad. There is nothing of basic appeal for Americans in them, and they'll die out in a year or so. Mrs. Bazine was always impressed by the judge. He had three days before been on one of his debauches. His manner, as a result, was heavier and his words slower. After one of his wild nights, the judge sought to efface the memory of the uncleanliness by heightening his personal appearance. He would indulge himself in Turkish baths, facial massages, hair shampoos, manicures, and changes of linen during the day. The sight of himself immaculately dressed, spotless, his face, collar, nails, and shoes shining, gave him a feeling of reassurance. Clothes and appearance had more and more become a fetish with him until he had developed into a fop. There was a certain passion in his demand for cleanliness. A disordered tie would mysteriously depress him. A spot on his trousers or shoes would preoccupy him until its removal. Once, while on his way from the theater, he had been splashed by a horse. Unaware of the accident at the time, he had gone to a restaurant. There he had noticed the condition of his clothes. The mud had reached as high as his shoulder. A nausea overcame him. He hurried to the lavatory and cleaned his clothes. His daughter admired her father for his fastidiousness. She looked upon all other men as somewhat sloppy in comparison. It isn't just that father dresses well, she said, but he's so particular about everything, about his plates and forks, and his bedroom must be bright as a new pin. Oh, it's just wonderful for a man to be thoroughly clean like that. Although the judge had spoken to Mrs. Bazine, it was her son who answered. I saw the pictures at the vaudeville the other evening, he said, and I quite agree with you, judge. The judge nodded pleasantly. He liked Bazine and had already prophesied a future for him. Henrietta was informing Doris of the trouble they were having with the church choir. Dr. Blossom, she was saying, is just absolutely at his wit's end. We can't get anybody, anybody at all that's at all suitable. Mrs. Gilchrist and Aubrey are coming over, Mrs. Bazine remarked to the judge. She was unable to keep a sound of pride out of her voice. "'A very fine woman, an exceptionally fine woman,' he answered. Mrs. Bazine nodded. Bazine sat down beside his sister, Doris. He was interested in Henrietta. The news of her approaching engagement had exhilarated this interest. He had been a half-hearted wooer himself when he first came out of college. As she rattled on, he was thinking, She has nice eyes. She probably doesn't love Aubrey. He thought of Aubrey, 
a putty-faced, swell-headed fool. He could put it all over him, even as a writer, if he wanted to. "'I hear,' he said aloud, "'that you and Aubrey are engaged, or almost engaged.' "'Why, the idea! Gracious!' a disturbed giggle. "'Where on earth did you hear that? Father hasn't announced it yet.' "'A little bird,' smiled Basine. Doris looked at him and frowned. "'What do you say we pop some corn?' he announced. One of Basine's most engaging facilities was an ability to reflect in his own words and actions the character of those to whom he talked. Judge Smith regarded him as a young man of stable ideas and profound seriousness. Henrietta looked upon him as a charming, light-hearted youth who was able to play. There were others to whom he appealed separately as a young man of culture, modern to his fingertips, as a man of pious kindliness, as a man interested exclusively in politics, in economics, in literature, in women. His pose was seemingly at the mercy of his audience. He did not deliberately seek to make himself agreeable by presenting exteriors acceptable to his friends. His proteanism was in the main unconscious. It was the result of an underlying desire to impress men and women he knew with his superiority. He had found instinctively that a short cut to such impression was not contradictions but agreement. He would not merely say yes and please his listener by subscribing wholeheartedly to the ideas or points of view under discussion. He would take these ideas and points of view and develop them, show with a sincere creative enthusiasm why they were correct and how astoundingly correct they were. He was usually cleverer than the people with whom he agreed. This made it possible for him to develop their ideas, to add to them, supply them with nuances and far-reaching overtones of which their originators had had no inkling. When he had finished, they would find themselves warmly applauding what he had said, admiring his sanity and intelligence. It was no longer Basine who agreed with them. They agreed with Basine, and each of them went away saying, a remarkable young man, full of very fine, worthwhile ideas and able to express himself. They were conscious while praising him that they were also praising themselves. Although they were unaware of the adroit theft committed by Basine and unable to follow the way in which he filched their little prejudices and inflated them to noble proportions with his cleverness, they felt a kinship with the young man. Their inferior egoism did not demand recognition as collaborator. They were warmed with the emotion of being en rapport with someone whom they admired. So often clever people were people with whom, somehow, one had little or nothing in common. But Basine was a clever person with whom everyone seemingly had everything in common, and they were delighted to have things in common with a clever man. There were occasions on which Basine's cleverness was put to a difficult test. These came when a number of people, each of whom knew him differently, 
to each of whom he had identified himself as a champion of divergent opinions, assembled in his presence. Basine, it usually happened, was the friend in common, and therefore the pivot of the vague debates which sometimes started, the awkward exchange of half-remembered arguments which constituted the intellectual life of his friends, as the make-believe of playing house had constituted their adult life when they were children. But at such times, Basine revealed his interesting talents as a compromiser, fence-straddler, pacifier. Without espousing any of the sides presented, without denial or affirmation, he managed to convince the assemblage that he was a champion of all and detractor of none. He pretended a worldly tolerance, saying such things as, well, now, there are always two sides to a question, and a man who closes his mind to either side is likely as not to find himself in the dark. What Henning says is interesting. I can entirely understand it and see the reasons for it. He sees the thing in a clear, definite manner. Yet what Stoffel says is also interesting and, of course, entertaining. I don't mean that I believe two sides to a question can both be the right sides, but it's my experience that there's an element of truth as well as of error in both sides. And I'm not so convinced that Henning and Stoffel actually differ. Often people meaning the same thing get into violent arguments because they misunderstand each other. In this way he would convince both his friends that they were both men of intelligence which is more flattering than being merely men of intelligent views. And, what was more important, he would give the listeners the impression of a calm, deliberative Basine, not to be taken in by the tricks of prejudice and speech which caused men to knock their heads together in endless argument. Henrietta accompanied him into the kitchen in quest of corn to pop. Doris remained behind, staring disinterestedly at the judge who was talking to her mother. She had noticed something about the man that displeased her. She kept it, however, to herself. When he shook hands with her, he assumed a paternal manner. He said to her, "'Well, my dear child, and how are you today? Serious as ever, I see. I understand that you and my little girl had quite an interesting time at the choir practice Saturday evening. Dear me, you will both soon be grown up and young ladies before I'm aware of it. He talked with a kittenish banter in his voice, as if he were patting a child of five on the head. But he held her hand during his entire speech, and his soft fingertips pressed moistly into her palm. It was hard at first to detect but after a long time Doris understood. Fanny had told her in an unsolicited confession that young men did that when they wanted to be familiar with a girl. It was a familiarity which only bad girls understood. Fanny added that a number of nice men whom she never would have suspected of such a low thing had done that to her hand, but that the way to get the better of them was merely to pretend you didn't know anything about it. Doris, disgusted by her sister's chatter, had remembered Judge Smith. The judge always did that, moving his fingertips as if he were unaware of the fact. 
This afternoon he had done it again. She had never been able to see the judge as her mother and brother saw him. To Doris there was something intangibly repulsive about his flabby, smooth-shaven face, about his shining linen and deliberate manner that impressed everybody. She did not resent the things he said. To these she was, in fact, indifferent. But the man's personality awakened a revulsion in her. She did not explain it to herself. She was aware only that she felt uncomfortable when he looked at her, and that when he beamed his kindliest or boomed most virtuously, she felt like sinking lower in her chair and contorting her face with shame, not for herself, but for him. Basine and Henrietta had returned to the room. A great fire was burning wanly. Basine, squatting down like an elated boy, arranged a cushion for her. "'Oh, we've forgotten the thingamabob!' he exclaimed. "'Come help me find that!' Henrietta skipped excitedly after him. Moments like this were dear to Henrietta. Looking for thingamabobs, planning popcorn feasts, having lots of fun and in a way that was intelligent. In the kitchen, Basine searched for a minute and then turned to the girl with a laugh. "'I wanted to ask you something,' he said. "'That's why I lured you out again.' "'For heaven's sake! Gracious! Aren't you ashamed of yourself, George Basine?' She laughed with him. The thought had secured to him that it would be interesting to take Henrietta away from Aubrey. He didn't want her himself for any particular purpose. She was not a girl one could seduce, or even desired to seduce, and marriage was miles from his head. Yet he had once held her hand while sitting on her father's porch and whispered idiotic things to her. He had made love to her, said to her, Henny, dear, I'm wild about you. It annoyed him to think that Aubrey Gilchrist would marry her, would appropriate her as if things he, Basine, had said and done were of no possible consequence. In addition, he had always disliked Aubrey. Henny, he said quickly. He had called her Henny two years before. Are you really in love with Aubrey? Henrietta made a face and swung her shoulders like a child embarrassed. Like Keegan, he was physically tired from his night's debauch. But in Basine there was no impulse to repent. As he stood looking at the girl, he grew curiously sensual in his thought. The consciousness of his deadened nerves was an irritant to his vanity. He was always doing things he felt disinclined to do, as a result of his constant work of idealization. Also, to follow one's impulse and act logically was what everyone did, in a way. If Hugh Keegan was tired, he sighed and said so. But Basine, if he was tired, would laugh and suggest adventures. If Keegan or the others he knew were elated over something, they announced it, naively, like children. But Basine edited his elation, and often pretended to be bored. And when he was actually bored, he often pretended enthusiasm. Such odd perversions had become a habit with Basine. Behind the confusion of purpose that inspired them 
was a certainty that in acting the way he did he distinguished himself from other people. Often no one was aware, of course, that he was acting, that his enthusiasm was the heroic mask of weariness. But Basine was enough of an egoist to enjoy secretly the emotion of superiority. Because he was tired, and because he would have preferred ignoring the trim figure laughing beside him, he deliberately took her hand and allowed his smile to grow serious. Now, as he looked at her and saw her eyes soften, his vanity clamored for satisfaction. It was one of the moments in his life when his vanity most desired satisfaction, proof of the high opinions he held of himself. He was tired, bored, and without impulses. To dominate others, to possess himself of their regard and homage, was the goal toward which he always built. Now the desire to possess himself of the regard and homage of the girl whose hand he was holding came acutely into his thought. Henny, he whispered, I'm sorry about you and Aubrey. Why? This was the sort of boy and girl scene at which she was almost adept. People held hands and even kissed without altering the correct social tone or content of their talk. Because, said Basine, oh, well, because I love you. The phrase stirred, as it always did, a faint emotion in his heart. He had used it frequently, even with prostitutes, and it had always given him a fugitive sense of exultation. Walking alone in the street at night, he would sometimes whisper aloud, I love you, George. Oh, I love you so. He would have no one in mind whom he might be quoting at the moment. The words would come and utter themselves, and give him a sudden lift of spirit. It was like his other self-conversation when, walking along swiftly in the street, he would begin exclaiming under his breath, Wonderful! 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 The word, like his mysterious, I love you, George, came without cause or relation to his thoughts and repeated itself on his lips. Henrietta was staring at him. It was chiefly because she was surprised. She remembered that they had been friends once and held hands and that he had said things. But all that had been a part of a pretty game one played with boys because they liked it and because it was rather likable in itself. She was surprised now because he looked sad. Sadness, in her mind, was synonymous with seriousness. People were never serious unless they were sad. When she wanted to be serious, she would always lower her eyes and arrange her expression as if she were going to weep. Then people understood that what she said was really truly serious and not just part of the game people were always playing among themselves. A game in which nothing was serious or funny or anything, but just was. Because that was the way it should be. Basine was pulling her slowly toward him. "'Don't you love me?' he asked. "'Don't you love me at all?' 
he was talking aloud to conceal the fact that he had drawn her to him and was placing his arms around her to do anything like that in silence would have frightened henrietta but to talk while one was doing it that made it seem less definite one could ignore what one was doing ignore the hands pressing one's shoulders and the touching of bodies by pretending to interest oneself entirely in the conversation basine knew this because he had made love to girls and taken liberties as long as he kept talking and asking questions the girl would pretend she was so occupied in answering the questions and keeping up socially her end of the talk that she was oblivious to the liberties that were being taken with her henrietta answered why do you ask that do you really think you ought to ask me questions like that george basine yes i do he said why shouldn't i oh because because you're engaged to marion who told you that i know anybody could know that aren't you no more than you are to aubrey gracious aren't you the clever boy i declare engaged to aubrey heavens i'd like to know where you heard that a little bird told me it did not yes it did you know better than that george basine i wish you'd tell me really why should i i'd like to know that's why i think i have a right to know oh but i did tell you something i told you i love you why george basine during the talk basine had moved her closer to him his arms were tightly around her and he had kissed her eyes and cheeks between his questions and answers the embrace had aroused no physical desire in him he was irritated by the coolness of his nerves he was irritated at his being unable to feel anything with his arms around a pretty girl usually the incident would have reached its climax with the half kiss he placed on her mouth that was as far as good girls went at this point they ordinarily said something like listen i want to tell you something i almost forgot and gently detaching themselves from one's arms continued to talk in the same tone they had used during the embrace about some event that had occurred during the week and then one returned to the sitting-room and went on talking casually as if nothing had happened it was the height of bad taste to remind a good girl today that one had kissed her yesterday or to presume upon it in any way it was the height of bad taste also to resist when they gently pushed one away and said listen i want to tell you something i almost forgot basine knew the simple technique of these virginal intrigues henrietta's hands were pressing him this was the signal to release her and pretend that nothing had happened ordinarily basine would have complied he had no interest in the girl his original impulse to take her from Aubrey had slipped from his mind. But he had grown sad. The mild, sensual moment he would usually have experienced in the embrace had been missing. 
his tired nerves had not responded. Unable to exhilarate his senses, he sought to make up for the failure by treating his vanity to an exhilaration. This exhilaration would come if the girl he was holding grew suddenly sad, raised wide eyes to him, and in a shamed voice murmured, I love you, George. Oh, I love you so. He would make her do this. Oh, Henny, why don't you love me? I want you so much all the time. Why, George Bazine! She had suspected something different about the game when it started, and this was different. Even with Aubrey it had not been as different as this. Aubrey's mother and her father had decided upon the engagement after Aubrey had been fussing her for a few weeks. But this was different. George Bazine was in love with her. She had always liked him because her father said he was a fine, promising young man, and because he knew how to play, and was really like herself in many ways. She wondered what she should do. She felt worried because she was afraid she would say something that wasn't right. She couldn't ask him to let her go because he was only holding her lightly, and she could move away if she wanted to. She thought his eyes were sad, and she felt suddenly sorry for him. He had stopped talking, and his eyes were sad. They were looking at her, and they made her feel sad, too. Things were so different when one felt sad. Everything seemed to go away then, and nothing remained. Everything went away and left one a little frightened, as if the world were unreal and everybody was unreal and nothing really was. She was frightened like that now, or at least she thought it was fear. Then she saw it was something else. Her heart had started to pound hard and her throat fluttered inside. No one had ever looked at her like this, so seriously, as if she were somebody very serious. It made her feel strange. She grew dizzy and her arms felt weak. She whispered his name and his hands crept over her cheeks. This thrilled her as if there were electricity in his fingers, and frightened her again. But it was nice, like being a little girl, almost a baby, and falling into an older man's arms, her father's arms. She could almost remember being a little girl and lying in her father's arms. Do you love me? She would answer this time. Yes, she said. Oh, George. She hid her face against his coat. Basine was careful not to embrace her. Her yes had given him an inexplicable moment. He had felt himself expand under it. In her unexpected submission, he had never dreamed of such a thing ten minutes ago, she became suddenly someone who was very rare and sweet. He was still utterly oblivious of her, and had it turned out to be Marion in his arms instead of Henrietta, the difference would have made no change in him. The thing that was rare and sweet was the exhilaration in his senses, a purely spiritual exhilaration. He enjoyed it as one might enjoy some unforeseen and startling gift. 
he grew tender. He wanted to kiss the eyes and hair of her who had given this gift to him, the thing which felt so warm in his heart and tingled so pleasantly in his thought. He must reward her somehow for having stirred in him this delicious excitement, reward her for the sweet surfeit her surrender had given his vanity. For a moment, bewildered by this inner desire to express the gratitude he felt, he stood trembling. "'Oh, I love you so, my darling,' he whispered. "'You're so beautiful.' It was her reward for having surrendered to his unspoken demand. It was an expression of the overwhelming generosity that choked him. He found in the saying of the words a sweetness almost as keen as her surrender had afforded him. To hear himself say to someone, I love you, was mysteriously exhilarating. The thrill that accompanied his bestowal of largesse excited him to further experiment. He was not carried away but he relished the emotions between them, the sense of having triumphed, and the provoking sense of bestowing grandiose reward. "'Darling, tell me, please tell me, will you marry me?' "'Oh, George!' "'Tell me, tell me!' He was acting now, making his voice dramatic, pretending uncontrollable longings. She must say yes. He wanted her to, and she must. He did not want to marry her. The thought had never occurred to him. But it would be unbearable now unless she said yes. He must pretend and act and make the thing end by her saying yes. Oh, I can't tell you, George, dear. You must, please. He had decided now, finally, to make her. A contest of wills. If he wanted a yes, there must be a yes. Because he wanted it. His arms crushed her. He fastened against her. He felt her resisting. There was still no desire in him. His arms were still dead. But he could brook no resistance. The fact of resistance was unimportant, but the idea of being resisted fired him with a passion entirely cerebral. He would warm her into saying yes, stir her senses, make her yield and her head swim until she said yes. I love you. Please say it. Say yes. Yes to what? Henrietta, for an instant, awoke from the confusions of the past few minutes. Her morality, training, code of life and all sat up like a wary censor and surveyed the scene. The censor nodded an affirmation. It was all right. Go ahead. With this affirmation her body took fire. The weakness she had been struggling against became a beautiful enervation a lassitude that swept her unresistingly forward. She had never done this before. She struggled for a moment to recall the censor, the thing that had always directed her. But she seemed to have been deserted. She was alone with sensations. Her virginal mind was unable to identify the excitement rising in her. She waited while his caresses grew bolder. 
then in a panic born of a dim realization she flung her arms passionately around basine and sobbed yes yes oh george i will she felt at once that she had said it just in time that it would have been sinful to continue another moment without promising she would marry him basine released her slowly the incident abruptly was over he had in fact lost interest in it immediately before she had spoken the thrill had come developed and gone a spiritual exultation which he had enjoyed to the utmost but now it was over his vanity surfeited had withdrawn from the situation he was surprised to find himself looking at the girl with utter dispassion as if nothing had happened inwardly he was amused such things were amusing in a way moments in which one saw oneself as an outrageous actor doing something ridiculous it was like that now absurd but it had been pleasant curious how pleasant however that was over henrietta would of course forget about it and he he was prepared to return to the library and go on popping corn as if nothing had happened absolutely nothing but henrietta leaned weakly against his arm oh george darling do you really love me he answered out of a social respect for consistency and nothing else he thought the question rather tactless of course he didn't love her and she should have known better than to ask it it had just been a game they had played while looking for the thingamabob yes henny of course her eyes were wide and her lips quivered she was looking at him as if he were doing something remarkable and she overcome with astonishment for an instant basine wondered why the deuce she looked that way then he felt an unexpected chill that he dismissed promptly with an inwardly assuring smile as he heard her saying oh we'll be so happy together when we're married isn't it wonderful just too wonderful for words to be married together oh george i'm so happy i love you so much and father will be so end of chapter five Recording by Roger Moline.